Today is May 29th, and we just ended a fantastic, fun conversation with Jack Curry all about the Yankees past, Yankees future, Yankees in between. Let's do it. Let's talk Yanks. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Talking Yanks. My name is Jimmy. I have Jake with me. Producer BBD's here, and we literally just finished a nice uh, conversation with good friend Jack Curry from the Yes Network, who was our first ever guest. He's been on the show, I think, three or four times now, and it's always uh, fun to catch up with him, especially uh, considering this was weird times and we weren't talking about the present. We were just talking about, you know, past Yankees and some old fun stories. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was an awesome conversation, Jake, right? There's uh, not much better than getting lost in Yankee wormholes with Jack Curry. Um, it's, uh, we, you know, any, any, any player or name that listed... Uh, we dove in, I mean, starting with the big guy, Derek Jeter, and then all the way down to names like Ramiro Mendoza. So, uh, Jack, Jack's awesome. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is what our fourth time with Jack Curry, something like that. Fourth or something like that. Uh, he's been very, very kind to us and we appreciate that. I, uh, yeah, not to, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think it's like, I don't want to say perfect podcasting, but man, it's it's loose, it's fun, but there's still so much good stories and information that now I sound like our own hype man, so I'll stop. But it's uh, yeah, Jack Jack's great. And this interview with Jack is brought to you by our good friends at CoverageGear.com. They got cover they whatever gear you want, they got you covered. They got a ton of Yankee stuff. You see me wearing the hat all the time, the baseball one. You know they got all rise hats. They got subtle Yankee hats with just the number on there, like a 11 for, for uh, Gardner with his name in the back. They're uh, fully licensed by MLBPA. They got Cole, dad hats, snapbacks, stickers. They even have uh, neck gaiters, which are mm. basically masks. I have those much better than the masks that go behind your ear, just kind of like a sleeve. Oh, it looks like they even have a Make the Yankees Great Again trucker cap. So some Ooh. people might like that. Some people might not like that at all, yeah. but they got it. They got Yankee Stadium hats. Go to CoverageGear.com. Check out the Yankee collection. Use discount code JOHNBOY. You get 20% off. CoverageGear.com. CoverageGear. And here is Jack Curry. Go back to back. (laughs) Belly to belly. We are joined by recurring guests and attendee of the... Bruce Springsteen's The River Tour in 1980. Jack Curry. Jack, how are you doing? Jake, I'm doing great. I'm glad that you were stalking my Twitter account because Always. somebody asked that question yesterday on Twitter. What was the first concert you ever attended? And little 15-year-old Jack Curry sent a self-addressed stamped envelope to Madison Square Garden. Not only did I get Bruce Springsteen tickets back in the mail, I got fourth row orchestra seats and that was the first concert i attended as silly as foolish as i might have been as a 15 year old i knew when i was standing there it's probably going to be one of the better shows you ever see kid so so enjoy it as much as you can 
Yeah, that's a hell of a bar to set. I mean, has it been topped? Do you have a better concert experience or is that still number one? John Boy, you know I'm a Clash fan. Uh-huh. You've seen puts on a show for the ages. I, I've probably seen him 15 times, so he's going to play for four hours. But my brother and I went to see The Clash in uh, 1981 at a place called Bonds. It's actually still on 45th Street in Times Square. It's kind of a restaurant now. And toward the end of the show, we climbed on stage. Now, the band was gone. They had, they had fled. But to be able to say <laughs> that as a 17-year-old, I was on the same stage that Joe Strummer and Mick Jones were on, that's probably my favorite concert ever. Did you grab a memento? Do you have like a pick or a drumstick or anything? No, I was not quick enough before we got ah. shuffled off the stage. I was eyeing up. I was eyeing up drum area because you're right. You think there might be some sort of music equipment lying around? No, I did not. I did not succeed in being a thief, John Boy. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about uh, baseball games? Did you ever like you know? Because we've been something I was we've just been doing. Say this. Yeah, something we've been doing is watching baseball games, uh, old games. Like we did. We started with 1972, and we watched bits and pieces of every World Series all the way to 2019. And something we couldn't believe was like, you know, the, I, I knew they rushed the field after games, but it from this mind, my, our mindset, we we're like, this is awful. The players can't celebrate. They have to rush into the clubhouse. They're Reggie scared. Reggie Jackson, he, he had to go grab a batting helmet because he was nervous and you see all the legs sitting over the right field wall and it's uh it's absurd so we need to know if you were involved in anything yeah you are were you a field rusher back in the day did you ever get the chance to do that it's kind of interesting guys so in the in the music world where where i was not eyeing up being a professional i didn't mind being a rebel but in baseball sports world i wanted to have some decorum so so the answer is no I don't know that I ever had seats close enough to think about running onto a baseball field, but but I share your your horror, I guess is the right <laughs> way to say it. Because when you look at some of those guys, I remember Chris Chambers after his home run, I think he just body blocks a guy to get back to the dugout. So I was never, I was probably never close enough to do that, and I'm I'm not sure honestly that I really would have ever done something like that because I I would have thought that. If I did that when I was 16 and then I try and go cover a game there when I'm 25, they still would have had my picture on a wall somewhere and they wouldn't have allowed me in and then I, then I would have been in trouble. It's crazy. My dad was at the Chambliss game, but he was way up, so he couldn't rush. He was at the Chambliss game and the Boone game, so he's been like his Not percentage bad. of games he's been to that have been amazing. It's so unfair. But yeah, did he save anything from either game? Is he a memorabilia guy? Ticket stub even program? No, no, he didn't. But I mean, at the Boone game, he saw a guy next to him rip the seat off, you know, and (laughs) take the seat home underneath his jacket, which is like insane that that people think that way. Like, it's just a piece of garbage at that point, but or scooping the dirt. I don't know. But yeah, those scenes were, were insane back then. And we were trying to map when did they stop this? And it was basically the 86 with the Mets kind of around that time period. Yeah, but, you don't even, you would never even think about, about doing that now with the amount of security and horses, uh, cops on mount, mounted horse top and all that. But yeah, there was a time in our history where, where that occurred. Quick story on seats. I don't know if you guys saw Mike Vaccaro's article in the Post about uh, Yankee Stadium seats. Did you guys see this article? Great column. I did not. He wanted to get a couple of Yankee Stadium seats as a kid. His dad signed off. His mother swooped in and said no. And he wrote this heartfelt column about uh, not being able to get those seats. But it reminded me of, I don't know how familiar you guys are with Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, 
I played some baseball games there in high school. That is a famous stadium, so much so that Jackie Robinson played his first professional game there. He was a minor leaguer. So it has a lot of history, a lot of bands, Grateful Dead, a lot of bands played there. So they were knocking that stadium down when I was in college. I convinced a couple of my buddies to drive from the Bronx to Jersey City. We crammed four Roosevelt Stadium seats into my Grand Torino, gave the guys who were working construction five bucks for the four seats, put them in our dorm, thought in the common area, thought we were the coolest, or I thought we were the coolest guys on campus. About a week later, physical plant came in, <laughs> removed the seats. So I owned those seats <laughs> for about five days. And then my, my great treasured memento from Roosevelt Stadium was in the trash at Fordham somewhere. That is pretty cool, though. I like when people have seats. We went to Phil Hughes's house in California, and he had some old Yankee Stadium seats in his little his setup. And it's so weird to see them out of their element. And then it is there is a, a cool feeling to them. When, it you looks know. tiny, right? I mean, it looks yeah. like where'd you fit in that seat? Yeah, and you realize how many people are just stacked. It's crazy. We talk about mounted horseback, and I want to talk about a lot of the guests you've had, but you had Wade Boggs on to talk about that. And, and what, what struck me is, Jake, he said... He doesn't remember how he got on the horse and he's not looking to find out. No. <laughs> he just, he, he was up there and that was it. It's funny you say that. So my wife's a pretty avid baseball fan. There's a lot of things you could ask Wade Boggs. I mean, the guy had 3000 hits. He won five batting titles. He's got a world series title with the Yankees in 96, just a, a clinical hitter. So I, I told her I had interviewed Boggs that day. The first thing she said was, why did he jump on that horse? Did you ask him about the horse? So it's interesting that his career in a lot of people's minds has come down to that moment. I, I thought that was a terrific answer, John Boy, that he has that moment in his head somewhere and he, and he doesn't want to trade it in for anything at all. I remember talking to him after that game. I think the story has changed a little bit because I'm pretty sure after the game, he said it was the second time he'd ever been on a horse. I think now he's saying it's the first time. Well, the point is he was not an expert in equestrian uh, ability, but he found a way to get on the horse after that game. That's a good change to the story by him. I like the pivot to first time. It's a better, it's a better telling there. It is. I, I found the 1996 parade footage on, on the internet and I was watching it and the mounted police of New York made him an, an official Mountie, like gave him a helmet and stuff during the parade. And I think there's, there's something to be said. Someone needs to make like a coffee table book about the weird things that happen at parades because a lot of it is like playing into an inside joke or a theme that the team just went through that out of context 20 years later is like, why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense. I bet there's so many little nuggets like Wade Boggs becoming in a, um, an, a, an honorary mounted police officer. Well, I, weird. Covered, I covered that parade. I was on one of the floats. They had a media float. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. I did not remember the Boggs honorary Mountie story, so thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, it was the first and only parade I've ever covered, guys, and you want to know why? Once the fans along the way realized that we were the media float, uh, toilet uh, <laughs> rolls of toilet paper with rocks in them, they were firing stuff at us, it became a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> Not, not fun at all. So from then, from thereafter, I covered parades from the safety of the, the media area and just waited for everybody to come back and when the parade was done. I mean, I, I want, what, 
I want everyone listening to know that if the Yankees have a parade coming up in the future and we somehow sneak on a media float or whatever it is, feel free to aim the rocks at me because I won't care on that day. I will not <laughs> aim them at Mr. Curry or anyone else. Throw the rocks at me. I'm ready for that. I have a feeling you guys would do okay on the float. I have a feeling that you've got enough fans out there who appreciate what you do and like you guys that you might not get the uh, the venom that for some reason was directed at, at us that day. What, what is it like to see the the parade from that from that vantage point and you know just see the seas of people and I remember hearing some players talk about the first parade in New York and then '96 and saying like you would look down had to be a Yankee Eye, but you look down the cross streets. And it was just like nonstop. Is that what it was? It was, was it amazing? I remember a few things about it, John boy. First of all, just getting to the site at city hall where you needed to get on one to, to, to sort of figure out where you were going to go and everything was, was tricky. And so that was, there was panic that you weren't going to get to the right spot. Then once you were on the float, I have to admit it was very surreal. And I'd like to think I'm this jaded New York journalist and nothing, I've covered everything, I've seen everything. When you're part of that, that's pretty cool. None of that adulation is for you, but you're covering it and you're getting to see what these players are experiencing. So I remember having having a notebook in my hand and I'm just, I'm just trying to write down everything that I could see. But I, I did also try and remember to soak some of this in because th- this is pretty cool and part of it was fun and the streamers flying into your your float but again once once they determined that we were the enemy it uh it became less fun everybody just kind of got away from the sides of the float and and got to the center of the float and i was on a float i posted a picture of it not too long ago Heyman, sherman dave lennon susan waldman there were a bunch of people on there whose names you guys would recognize so we, we, had, we had fun with it do you think there was one like, you know, reporter there that was really, really, you know, angry and you were like, oh, they're throwing them at you, John, not me. Well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm probably not going to answer that one. He's probably, right here. They're probably more, well, I shouldn't say that. But yes, maybe there were. Maybe their eyes <laughs> directed at someone or some person individually, I can't say. Or maybe just once it said media. But like Jake said earlier, just won a World Series, man. It's been almost 20 years since the Yankees had won a World Series. We had chronicled that run for you. How could you? How could you be turning your attention against us at that point? Some people just would rather be angry than happy, and I think that is the biggest proof right there. If you go to a, a parade celebrating the team winning and you find some reason to be angry, you, you should probably find a therapist after that too. Why did Why did you write that article about Jeter going 0 for four that day, Jack? What were you thinking? <laughs> Um, let's, let's spin it back to Wade Boggs a little bit. Cause he's, he's a fascinating guy who's kind of left baseball a little bit. I mean, there's the, it's always sunny episode where they talk about Wade Boggs and there's some folklore you, stories that we you, don't need to. You mean his legend has gone past the baseball audience yes, into yes. mainstream there, audience. There's, there's some folklores that if you want to look them up, we don't need to deep dive into, but I know, um, there, there was kind of a special level of baseball player, uh, that when my dad was teaching me the game, he would just there's there's three guys that jump out that he said one sentence about him. He said that man can hit, and it was Wade Boggs, it was Don Mattingly, and it was Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn, he said, fat man could hit, but those were the three guys. And I know I, I've always been a baseball reference nerd, and I know I, Jimmy's starting to get deeper and deeper sunk into it. 
And Wade Boggs is one of those guys. He's got, what, five out of six years he won a batting title. And, I, I mean, some of the numbers are... I mean, would would blow some people's head off. When when you're talking about to him and about him, I mean, what, does your head see like the legendary guy on the field, off the fiddle field, a little mix of both, or or what? Uh, a little mix of both, and, and I'm glad you asked that because I have a couple things to say about Boggs. Covering him, I thoroughly enjoyed it because what we do for a living, we need someone who's going to share. A five word answer doesn't help me. I, I want to know your hitting technique. I want to know the science of hitting. I want to know where this swing, this stance came from. And Boggs loved to talk hitting. So I love that about him. In preparation for this interview and for all these interviews, and I'm not trying to get up on a soapbox here, but here, here's a little lesson for, for young journalists. I know all of these recent Yankees that I have interviewed, and I could sit down right now and talk to them without doing a stitch of research. But for every one of these interviews I've done, I've moved back to the 90s. I've gone back to my New York Times articles. I've reminded myself of what happened in 96 and tried to pick their brains about things that happened in the season that maybe they didn't even remember. So one of the things I did with Boggs was just ask him, what statistical nugget about your career stands out for you? For me, it was a period where for 162 game period across two seasons, he had 401. Wasn't a calendar year, but in a 162 game span, the dude hit 401 with a 476 on base percentage. He said that one. He goes, Of course, that one. But then the one that he kind of loved even more, and you just referenced it, there was a four year period where he had at least 200 hits and at least 100 walks. And he said, I, that, that is so hard to do. And I'm proud of having done that. And then the, the last thing I wanted to say was when I was a beat writer, there was so much stuff that you had to cover every day, every day. One of the ways that I tried to stand out was, what can you find out about this guy off the field? And one day I, uh, I found Nirvana in terms of baseball hitting. So I saw this guy watching Yankee spring training. And it, was, it had to be Wade Boggs' father. And without even, I just walked up to him and I said, are you, are you Wade's dad? The guy talked to me at length about <laughs> Wade Boggs and hitting. And he said that Boggs had the same stance, approach, and swing since he was in Little League. And I went up to Wade and asked him about that. He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, my dad taught me a way to hit. <laughs> Made him hit left-handed, by the way. Then taught him a way to hit. And that's the way that he continued to hit for his entire career. He made him – so that's, Posada's dad made him hit left-handed as well until he was 14. That blows my mind that – you know, that's – talk about being – putting your son on a path. And it's a scary Jorge, one if it doesn't work. Jorge says he was 0 for his first 20, hits a home run, and as he's rounding the bases, he's kind of like waving to his dad saying, I did it, I did it, I finally did it. And it's crazy. It, it, Jorge's dad, who was a baseball scout, interviewed him a handful of times. He told me this fascinating story about wanting to teach Jorge about work ethic. It was a beautiful sunny day in the summer, and Jorge wanted to go do whatever kids do at that point, baseball, swimming, riding his bike. His father gave him a, a bucket of paint, a can of paint, and said that that fence has been chipped and, and has needed paint for a long time. You need to go sand it and paint the fence. And he was ticked off. But he said <laughs> his father just wanted to teach him about a job needs to be done. This is the job you need to do today. So, again, the family right. connection. I used to always try and get to talk to players' families because you're going to find out so much about them that, that their teammates don't even know. Yeah, because a lot of these guys, they're – 
They're young when they come into the league. I thought you were going to go with a karate kid thing with the painting of the fence. It was like, you know, that's how he became a switch hitter or something. But It, it, it was similar. Jorge's dad <laughs> is a treat. The guy knows a ton about baseball. He's He's got his own story about uh, leaving Cuba, defecting from Cuba on a, on a boat with a one credit card and a bottle of water and, and, and making it here. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing story. It's crazy. So I, as you've been doing this, you've been churning out content. I was joking with Jake that, you know, you guys are living mine and Jake's life for the last two years now, sitting at your home in the office, making content uh, over the internet. Is it, uh, are you enjoying that process? I actually am, to be honest with you. We'd all like to see games, but I, I think there's value in relationships. I think there's value in storytelling. I think there's value in the ability to be able to get somebody who maybe you haven't spoken to in 10 years, but who they're willing to do an interview with you because you covered them many, many years ago. I covered Mike Gallego for three years with the Yankees. I don't know if I've spoken to him in 10 or 15 years. And when we reached out to him, boom, he got back to us. And then he profusely thanked me before and after the interview for not forgetting him and for remembering him and kind of including him as part of that, that Yankee run. Um, obviously, he wasn't there in 96. He left after the 94 season. But this is all leading up to something. It's been great to put all this on online and on YouTube. But we're actually producing a, a Yankee Dynasty show, 96 to 2000, that will air in June. I think the date right now is June 18th. Don't hold me to it. We'll probably put a, a ton of social media uh, promo stuff out there when it finally comes around. But I think we've gotten about 20 ex-Yankees already who will contribute to that show, including all but one member of the core four who we're supposed to nail down next week, a guy with the initials DJ, uh, <laughs> Ernie Williams, David Cohn. Well, David Cohn and Paul O'Neill work for us. They, they better have done it. Girardi, uh, Tim Raines, Cecil Fielder, Charlie Hayes, right up and down the list. Uh, it's been fun. It's been really enjoyable for me to be able to, to reminisce and, and go back and talk to those guys. Is there anything from doing all these interviews with these guys and kind of reliving those years that, that you said, oh, I didn't know that that was going on behind the scenes? Is there anything that's been surprised or piqued your interest in that way? There's been a lot of stuff, uh, John Boy, and interestingly enough, do you know who, who has provided some content that shouldn't surprise you? Because I think you guys maybe have interviewed him. Even though Buck Showalter was gone after the 95 season, when Buck Showalter talks about what that dynasty became and he wasn't part of it, to hear him talk about it, I mean, this guy had a lot of those players. This guy knew what the dynamic of that clubhouse was in 95. And they made, they made a lot of changes. We, we all know that. Martinez comes in, Cohn's now there for a full season. Jeter is uh, Jeter is the full-time shortstop. But the pride that they took in winning. Now, everybody goes out there and everybody wants to win. But there became a ferociousness and a fierceness about, about that team. And it started in 96. Obviously, they lose in 97. But then in 98, it really hits home where that team just felt as if it should win every day. So that was a part of it. And then Mariano Rivera used a great word. He, he used the word brotherhood, which I, which I thought was a great way to describe some of those players who, who were there for all four uh, and just the experience that they had. I could give you specific stories. I, I've heard specific stories from guys, things that I, I didn't necessarily know. Jorge Posada told me hilarious stories about how he used to intentionally try to agitate El Duque because El Duque pitched better when he was mad. So during warmups, Posada would short hop a throw to the mound or he would throw a pitch at his or his shins 
or before the game in the clubhouse, he would ignore him or he'd be late for the meeting. And he said that was my way of, of getting him fired up before games. And I, I loved getting inside content like that. And allegedly they got into a fist fight before a game in the, in the clubhouse once. So he must've gone a little too far one time, but yeah, that relationship, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for the Posada El Duque relationship. And that kind of paints it in a more fun picture than them just butting heads as Posada was doing gamesmanship with them, getting them into the right mindset. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited for this thing. So was the dynasty thing in the works a while ago, or is this kind of a quarantine? I think it's quarantine. I think it might've been something we would have done anyway. It's the 20 year anniversary of the subway series. We probably would have tried to do this anyway, but this has given us all the opportunity to, to come up with clever ideas, much like you guys are doing. I think it started out. Posada was the first guy I got. Then I got Mariano. And then I'm working with a couple of great producers, Jared Boschnack and Emily Coulter. And I think once we started to line up these people, well, what can we do with these beyond putting some online and then playing a snippet on these shows we do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday called Yes, We're Here. Where, where can we give these interviews an even bigger, a bigger splash? And it's going to be a 90-minute show. So people who are pining for baseball or, or pining for the, the days of those Yankee championships – I think they'll absolutely love it. Yeah, you guys, that is uh, what, awesome. How, how much have you stolen from the MJ documentary? I mean, was that the was was that more so? Hey, you know, I kind of like this flashback thing, or is it more so? You tell the producers, hey, six million people watch that, so we should do this because this is another dynasty. Or, or what? What was the biggest help of the MJ doc going with this one? It's funny you ask that because I think we had. I think everybody knew that the last dance was was coming and i'm not trying to say that we we stole anything or we stole an idea but i do think that even without quarantining this year we would have been remembering those teams like i said because of the 20-year anniversary the thing that's different about last dance and you guys obviously know this i'm not breaking any news here is i just told you a story about el duque and and jorge and john boy brought up the the potential of fisticuffs we don't have footage of that with, yeah with jordan you had the footage. You had him getting on guys. You had him riding his teammates mercilessly and, and being a bully. I mean, he was a bully, and, and he admits it. So that that's the one thing. I want people to watch our show, trust me, and, and our interviews I think will, will cause them to want to watch it. But the thing that made Last Dance stand out is we saw footage that we had never seen before. We've, we've seen the shot over Craig Elo. We, we, we've all seen that. But when you see him at practice getting in a guy's grill that, that you had not seen before, that's uh, that's pretty eye-opening stuff. A lot of people wanted to make the comparison Jeter and MJ. Uh, you know, some people were tweeting about about it. You know, they were winning is the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, tireless work and and long careers. I'm mean, Jeter had a 20 year career. I. Jeter's also charismatic. Like he could drop a joke and be a little sassy in his interview, especially when Kim Jones and him really got like a rapport. She really brought out like a a humorous side of Jeter. I thought in his post game interviews, but what do you see any similarities? Do you think Jeter led in, in, in that way? Was he tough on his teammates or was it just lead by example and try to keep up? I'll give you my answer in a second, but I'm going to tell you that I, I interviewed Mattingly a couple of weeks ago. Mattingly obviously saw a little of Jeter in 95. Then as a coach, obviously saw him again. Now works for him with the Marlins. Mattingly is a 
big Jordan fan. And Mattingly, in his own way, was was Jordan-esque in New York for a while. He, he talked about how he understood in the last dance where Jordan was, I'm just staying in my hotel room because I can't go out. Mattingly said that Jeter reminded him of Jordan, that he saw a lot of similarities. And I think, John Boy, that you just hit on some of those similarities. I think the single-mindedness, I think the focus, I think the get the heck out of my way, we're winning this game. I think where there was a difference is that Jeter's leadership style, from what I observed and have heard from teammates, was more lead by example. I'm not going to say that in his 20-year career, Jeter never got in a player's face, because he did. He got in David Wells' face once after Wells kind of threw his hands up in the air when, when a ball fell between a few fielders. From that footage, it seemed like this was not only a daily occurrence with Jordan, this was multiple times a day. I'm going to ride you. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to make you feel like you're, like you're worthless because when the crunch time comes, I need you to be tough. I don't think Jeter did that. I don't think that was in yeah. Jeter's DNA to to do what we saw Jordan do over and over again. At that. That Jordan-Bernie dynamic would have been a really interesting one. Those uh, <laughs> <laughs> different ends of the spectrum there, to say the least. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's a very interesting call by you. Bernie did not react well when a, when a thug like Mel Hall was, was trying to get him to be a certain way. But Mel Hall was doing it more out of viciousness. I think that if Michael Jordan, let's say Michael Jordan in basketball was Michael Jordan in baseball. And if he said to Bernie, Bernie, man, you got, you got to get a bigger secondary lead, man. We don't need you to be cement shoes over there at first base. Mm. You, you ran track in Puerto Rico. You're the fastest guy on <laughs> the team. Get a bigger secondary lead. I think Bernie would have reacted well to that. It was the Bernie, you're wearing funny glasses and you look like you should be in a librarian <laughs> jabs from Mel Hall that, that Bernie didn't appreciate. And nobody should. Why should anybody appreciate that yeah it's also just such a different dynamic with basketball like you know jordan their practices were games and they played against each other it's not like baseball you you just you know maybe in spring training you do live bp but even that's a little different but it it, that leads it to just you know you can't do it but also i jeter never seemed like from all the stories you hear is more guys would come over think he was overrated not get it and then just see him, his day-to-day and his schedule. And you hear so many players say like, hey, once I played with him, I really re- I really appreciated what he does day in and day out. I used to always tell people that when, when he and A-Rod were side-by-side, and if you look at A-Rod statistically, his numbers dwarf Jeter's numbers. I mean, a shortstop that puts up those power numbers. I thought A-Rod was the more talented player, but I thought Jeter was the better baseball player. And I, and I think anybody who watches baseball and understands baseball knows exactly what, what I'm saying, that Jeter just had a knack for knowing what the right thing was to do instinctually and, and making the right play and being in the right place, flip play, i.e. But about what you said about Jordan, too, is I just think there's more of a way in basketball to lead where you get in somebody's face. Point with 15 seconds left. He was getting the ball. How many times were the Yankees trailing by one run in the ninth inning and Jeter's not even getting it back? I just think yeah. there's a different way in basketball. When you, you're touching the ball on every possession, you're, you're going to have to sort of drag guys along with you. I don't know if that exists in baseball <clears throat> because of what I just said. 
<clears throat> baseball is its own biggest bully in a way too. Like the game is going to beat you up. You're yeah. going to go over 20. You're going to go over four in a day. And if you had another guy just rubbing that in every time it happened, you'd snap, yeah. you'd snap like crazy. It's a great know? point. So it's crazy. For, for it's all, crazy. for all our analytical listeners that just heard Jeter's a better baseball player than A-Rod that are coming back from their heart attack. It's okay. You're going to be okay. <laughs> um, and, I would I think, argue uh, that, by the way. I, I would argue that, and I would have I, I, I would have a lot of evidence to support what I the point I was trying to make. But I, I know what you're saying and, as well. Jack, no, I think that, day I think day in day out, Jeter did more to help his team win than Arod did because it's so many untangibles and so much like, hey, if Jeter's locked in for every single at bat, I better be locked in for right. every single at bat. And if Jeter's backing up the throw every single time, I better do it. You know, and stuff like that really. Changes the whole team. It matters. I agree. Yeah. And Jack, no, I, I was saying that makes our soul sing. Um, I, I was kind of mocking the rest of them. And Jack Curry acting as the Michael Jordan of baseball talking to Bernie Williams also made my soul sing. But let's <laughs> we'll, we'll bring it back to some of the yes stuff. And uh, one of your more recent ones that came out today, and you mentioned Buck Showalter, who he does – uh, we love Buck. Um, we haven't got him yet. We will. He'll come. But um, we talked to Delman Young on our talking baseball, and he's kind of an interesting baseball character himself. But he had the nicest things to say about Buck Showalter and was like, that dude looks at the game differently. Um, and that kind of confirmed everything we see on the Yes Network. But when you're lining up Buck Showalter and Deion Sanders, I mean, do you just light up inside journalistically? Like, a getting these two people that are somewhat from distant worlds. I mean, you know, Dion obviously played in, in Major League Baseball, but a lot of people know Dion Sanders for other stuff. But, I mean, what's your mindset going into that? Are you just trying to spark the fire and let them go off, or, or what's your mentality there? I was very excited, no doubt about it, because of what you just said. I thought that this had the chance to be a lot of fun and produce a lot of interesting stories because I've heard Buck talk about Dion so much. And I'm dating myself here, but I actually covered Dion a little bit as a baseball player in 1990. So I, I got a I feel for what Dion was about then. I really thought, guys, for that interview, I, I needed to be <clears throat> a bystander for the most part, but moderate and inject some topics when I needed to. And I think for the first five or six minutes of that interview, I might have spoken twice. And that, to me... There is skill in being an interviewer who is quiet, especially when you have two people there. There was no need for me to say anything. These two guys who knew each other so well for 30 years were reminiscing, so let them reminisce. But then I also, every interview I do, I might have the Buck Showalter, Dion, well, you don't need to see it, but I mean, I've got topics and I'm ready to hit all those topics. We absolutely wanted to talk about the Bo Jackson game where he hits three home runs. Dion comes up, hits a line drive to center field. Bo stretches out, doesn't catch it. Dion hits an inside-the-park homer. Bo separates his shoulder, has to leave the game, doesn't get a chance for a fourth home run, so we wanted to go there. And I just tried to lay back and, and watch when I needed to inject, and then I injected when I felt, okay, they might need a little help here. Let's throw this topic in there. Yeah. Big Baby Davey, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> now leave it in, David. Now leave it in. <laughs> get get but, that no, shout out. I thought it was going to be a roller coaster ride, but I thought it went really well. And post-interview, Buck sent me a text, and that made my day. That Buck said, "You were you were the moder you were the perfect moderator of a debate. 
You let us go when we needed to go, but you kind of reined us in when we needed to be reined in. And trust me, guys, when Buck was saying for the fourth time, what was that meal you made again, Dion? What was it pork chop and baked beans? I just let him go. Let him go. Yeah. <laughs> talking about pork chops. <laughs> how, was, how was Buck uh, getting set up? You know, we get all these players on here, and Lance Lynn didn't have a smartphone or really internet. I, I would guess if Buck said, yeah, I'm good. I know exactly what Zoom is. Uh, was Buck, that a, was Buck that a, was married to a princess by the name of Angela Showalter, who sets up his <laughs> iPad for him, yes. uh, maneuvers everything for him, and then about three times says, I'm leaving the room. Are you okay right now? <laughs> no, Buck's gotten really, really adept at it, really comfortable with it. And, and you guys hinted at it before. He is... He is such a baseball genius that when he's in the studio with us and the things that he sees, I I, I revel in having the opportunity to watch a baseball game with him. When I Did was you see... covering him, guys, I, I begged him to let me watch a game with him. No, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to anger the opposition. And then one year he finally agreed. They had finished playing the A's for the year. And Buck doesn't like Tony La Russa. And he clearly <laughs> didn't mind... So why don't we do that, uh, whatever game it was, that, that game against the A's. I'll do that game with you. So we did a game, and I got to sit down and a good old uh, video cassette recorder, watch a game with him on a VCR. And the things that he watched and saw in that game, I wrote the story in the Times. It's out there somewhere. And uh, I learned so much that day and continue to learn a lot from him. Kirkchin just wrote another one, uh, kind of the uh, same thing. So it's all coming back. He's getting a lot of love. Jake, did you see – some of the uh, Buck analytics in the Kirkchin article was he said, there's never been a great player with freckles. And that if a guy's feet point out to 10 to 2, he's not fast. You want guys that are their feet point in. Those are the speedsters. North and and it was like just, yeah, just like, you know, little things like that. High that butt, high, you have a high butt on your body or a low butt. The high butt guys are the faster runners. And yeah, he, he sees things. Guys, one day in Lorenz's office, we're getting ready for the, uh, the game uh, to watch the game. And you finish the pregame. That's sort of like you you finished your workout, you know, and you're getting ready for the next workout. Bob and I are ordering food, and yes, was showing. I think Dan Cunningham and the grounds crew they were just watering the field for the final time. Buck went on this dissertation about the various <laughs> heights of the grass in different ballparks, which grounds crew does what they're trying to do to help their team and how that can help you or not help you. And I mean, it was, it was a PhD class in the grass and manicuring of a baseball field. And I'm telling you 29 other managers, well, 30 now, because Buck doesn't have a job. 30 other managers were not watching that, that closely. They're just not. It's crazy. That's awesome. He's awesome. Uh, I wanted to jump, jump back to kind of the dynasty years and there's a, a player that came in that really kind of wrinkled the fabric of the team a little bit. And I think it would be an interesting segment of the dynasty and Chad Curtis, because he really didn't get along with Jeter. Jeter. I mean, the way it's told is Jeter basically said, get this guy out of here. Um, we were watching back the 97 world series, Chad or, or 2000, Chad Curtis hits the home run and the sideline reporter goes to do the interview. What was his name? Guy? Jim Gray. Jim Gray Jim goes Gray. to do the interview and asks Chad Curtis, what does it feel like to hit that home run? And he says, we're not talking to you because of what you did to Pete Rose. Pete Rose. Um, was, was, did Chad Curtis come into that team 
and really ruffle a lot of feathers, just Jeter's feathers. Um, and it turns out that Chad Curtis goes on to be, uh, I can think confidently we can say not a good guy, um, a dark path the rest of his life. But at the time, at least the way I've read it, that put a kink into kind of the cohesive fabric brotherhood of that team. Well, to get him for an interview right now would be difficult, you know. You yeah. Do, you do know he's in federal prison. Yeah, you have yeah. to pay by the hour. So that would not be an easy interview to acquire. Chad Curtis was a type A personality. He was very hyper, and he was a a guy who, I'm not saying I got to know him very well, but I know from talking to other reporters that Chad was also a player who would preach to certain members of the media about you should follow my religious path. So I know that that happened. I wrote an article about uh, Jeter and Chad Curtis, which I wish I had it in front of me right now. And with Jeter, who normally shied away from uh, saying anything negative about a player, basically went after Curtis a little bit. And it was after, um, I think Frankie Rodriguez of the Mariners, I forget all the specifics, hit somebody on the Yankees. And there was a broad, everybody emptied. And Jeter and A-Rod were, were talking off to the side and were sort of caught on camera, maybe laughing a little bit. And the way Jeter described it was he and A-Rod said, well, next time this happens, I got you, you got me. And that, that generated a little bit of a chuckle. And Curtis, as Jeter was walking off the field, Curtis confronted him. We all saw this. And Curtis said, that's not, way to, that's not the way to act. And you know Jeter, he's not, he's not going to want to have a confrontation on the field. So I think that created a, a forever fissure between those two players. Not that they were ever close to begin with, but Chad Curtis went after, he went after the most popular guy on the team. And a guy who, as we talked about. Guy, a popular guy in the country for baseball at that lived time. Lived his really. baseball life in a certain way. And here's Chad Curtis telling him how to act. And that, that did not go well in, in Jeter's world. And uh, Jeter was not happy with that. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting because that's the only time you hear about Jeter telling, you know, going off on another player or publicly saying, like, get that guy out of here. Or, no, I don't like him. So it's always a, a wrinkle to me. We're talking. I'm trying to see if I can find this article because he basically said something like, I, I have nothing to say to that guy, which, which for Jeter is saying a lot, as you yeah. guys just pointed out. Yeah. It's crazy. And then the, the Pete Rose thing was wild. We were like, whoa. Yeah. Don't remember that happening and all that. But apparently it was, uh, I always wonder because you hear about that Curtis, like, was that really a Yankees group decision or is Chad just uh, acting on his own to not talk to uh, Gray? Tori, Tori criticized or admonished Curtis after that and said, you don't, you don't speak for all of us. Yeah. Um, that, that's what it felt like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> all right, here you go on the spot. I found it. Eight days have passed since Chad Curtis criticized Derek, Derek Jeter for what he considered inappropriate behavior during a nasty brawl between the Yankees and Seattle Mariners. After tense talks that night and another discussion that included an apology from Curtis, the Yankees stressed that the disagreement was history. But apparently there is still a chill between the players, is a quote from Jeter. I guess the best way to put it is you asked me if I'm worried about something that Chad Curtis said. No, I'm not. Am I worried about it? No. I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's a situation where, hey, he didn't know what we were talking about. Unless you know what's going on, and you shouldn't approach someone in that manner. Hmm. So, yes, and that, that was, um, is that 1999? August of 99, yeah. He's traded the next, that offseason. 
Yes. Yes. I believe sir. that sounds right. Yeah. Makes yeah, it looks sense. like to the Rangers for Brandon Knight and Sam Marsonic. How's your Yankees uh, history on those two names? Pretty chill. <laughs> Actually, Sam Marsonic is an interesting name. If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Sam Marsonic became a a counselor. I'm pretty sure he has subsequently helped players. Uh, maybe a substance abuse counselor. He got one game in the bigs in 2004, so good for him. Cuts. I wonder if he was in that book, Jim. Wasn't that the the one-day baseball club? Yeah, the Cup of Coffee Club. It's a good book. I don't think he was in it, though. But Um, that's a a crazy book. Jack, I want another name that was thrown in casually there and another guy you talked to recently, Mr. Torrey, Father Joe. How, uh, in general, what, like, what's... When you go back to those 90s teams, and I, I think it's funny that we have the managerial pictures that leak now where you see, you know, it almost looks like the presidential pictures where they, they age and Girardi's got the grays and all that kind of stuff. And as, again, as we're rewatching these World Series, I mean, Joe Torre's brother had, what was it, a heart transplant or something like that? And there's you know, so much going on. He lost one brother, Rocky, right, passed away during the season. His other brother, Frank, had heart transplant surgery right in the middle of the postseason, right around the World Series. So that was a there was so much that happened with that 96 team on and off the field. Right. So when when you talk to uh, Joe now, I mean, is it uh, is it more honky dory than he used to be? I mean, is it looking back and it's all memories at this point? Is he still kind of entrenched in it? When I asked Joe about those four championship teams, he said, you asking me about this again gives me goosebumps. So I think that answered your question, that there's a level of pride as having been the man who presided over that legacy. He had great players, but he obviously had a good touch as a manager as well. And what always stood out for me was Joe Torre had, had a personality and, and a knack for just being a, a soothing influence on people. Doesn't mean he was a softy doesn't mean he wasn't a tough guy. It just meant that I had many players tell me that they almost felt as if they were uh, letting down their favorite uncle or their grandfather if they didn't perform well for Joe Torrey. And I, I, you said Father Joe. I remember writing an article for the Times, and I'm a pretty devout Catholic, and I go to church every <laughs> Sunday, and I, I still wrote this. I, I wrote an article where I called him St. Joe because I said this, this is just the way that everybody views this guy. Yeah. And his sister was a nun. So when I raised the St. Joe to him and told him what I was writing, he said, well, I'm not sure I'm really comfortable with, with you saying that, but I guess I kind of understand it a little bit. And Tori just had a way for, for getting the most out of his players. And when you talk to guys, and I've had endless discussions with Paul O'Neill, David Cohn, and others about this, he treated men like men. He treated players, and you hear this, well, he, he let us be baseball players. There's a lot to be said for that, guys. When you play 162 games in 180-plus days, you you can't be a football coach. You can't be in guys' faces every day. You've got to let them steer themselves along until maybe there is a day where, where they need to be admonished. And maybe when they have their darkest hour is when you need to be their biggest supporter. And that's where I think Tory had the greatest knack. I, I've said this a few times, and you, you've heard my affinity for Showalter, and I – I loved covering Buck, learned more about baseball covering Buck than anyone I've ever been associated with. If Buck manages that 96 team, 
I'm not sure what the result is. I can't definitively tell you that that team absolutely wins in the way that it did because I think some of Tory's soothing approach helped that team get to where it eventually got. That doesn't seem like that was always Tory. There's that video that went, you know, keeps going viral where he's biked up for uh, a long road to October, the Braves documentary, and he sounds like a character from Deadwood. And, you know, us, us 90s Yankees fans who grew up with Papa Joe, that is not the guy I remember. Even when he argued as a Yankee manager, it was very like looking down, um, covering his, you know, you know, covering his mouth kind of and just kind of like, uh, uh, like a disappointed scolding to the ump. Do you think that like there was a drastic change when I, he came to the Yankees? I think he matured, John Boy. I, I think he became, you get a little older, you get a little wiser. But I did see him, and, and everybody always talks about the way he dealt with the media too. I did see him flash his anger at the media on a couple of occasions. There was one moment, I, I forget which player, all this stuff runs together. It might have even been David Cohn's aneurysm. But we were all gathered in his office and and low low for the days and i'm saying pre-coronavirus i don't want to say anything about obviously with the clubhouse situation but it used to be great when you covered games and you actually went into a manager's office after the game and everything wasn't a press conference that everybody was going to be involved in because i actually think you could get some more out of guys but in his office he went after a couple of reporters because uh the Yankees really weren't giving a ton of medical information about whatever the situation was. And I, I think it might've been Cohen's aneurysm and man, Joe got angry and that, that, uh, that office got quiet real fast. So <laughs> I do think he, he matured in the way that maybe you don't need to yell, but I still think that he had that, he had that in his DNA. The other thing Joe did that was so genius. And this I think is a maturity factor as well. A lot of managers used to be afraid that George Steinbrenner was going to call. Oh no, lost five games in a row. And in the fifth game, the team made four errors and looked sloppy. I'm gonna sit by the phone and worry that Steinbrenner is going to call. Joe used to call George. Joe would beat George. Wow. And so that was that was so smart. Basically, I'm gonna take my I'm gonna take my licking. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my my slap on the wrist here and I'm gonna make the owner happy because I'm gonna recognize that we didn't play very well. And I, I think that helped Tory have such a smooth relationship with Steinbrenner because he kind of dictated, he kind of dictated the action. Yeah, George, George is going to be angry. I'm going to call him and I'm going to reassure him. We've got Cone, Pettit, and Wells pitching the next three games. We'll be fine. It's <laughs> a good approach. Yeah, he calmed him down. Yeah, Tory also. I was reading an article recently that you know he he never had team meetings, but he did before every post game. Every, every postseason game, he had a little team meeting and just said, hey, we're fine, guys. Go have fun, relax, and all that stuff. Yeah. Funny story about Paul O'Neill is he canceled batting practice. Um, when they were playing, it was 98, and they had so much pressure to win because they were the best team in baseball, crazy record, and they lost the first two games to the Indians, I believe, right? And so he, they fly to Cleveland, and Torrey canceled batting practice said go explore go to rock and roll hall of fame go do this go to this and paul o'neill's wife walked to the front of the plane and said uh joe paul needs to hit i don't want to deal with him so then they made so then tory changed it to okay it's voluntary practice and every single yankee showed up i thought that was a that was a really funny story especially like that's a cool you know, story i didn't know that Neville Lee did that that's that's a pretty funny story yeah, I can't deal with him. He needs to go. 
Thanks. That was one of Tori's pet peeves, guys, by the way. He thought that players hit way too much. He used to hmm. he used to talk about that a lot. He'd be sitting in the dugout and that was another thing about Tori. A lot of managers would do their do their fifteen minutes of, of media and then go on the field, carry a fungal bat around, talk to players. Joe would sit in that dugout for an hour talking to the media. And it was also a genius move because the more time he occupied the media, the less time they had the chance to get a guy who was struggling running off the field. And maybe that guy didn't feel like talking about being one for his last 17. So Joe had a lot of, uh, a lot of savvy ways that, uh, that he utilized as a manager. Yeah. And you had Girardi on and you asked about the transition from being teammates with these guys and then replacing Tory, who was so notorious for dealing with superstars and older players. And Girardi had one manager of the year with the Marlins I think their average age was probably 25. I know the starting staff was all 22-year-olds. And there's stories, you know, Joe talked about it with you that he kind of said, and I love Joe, but he kind of said, well, you know, I was the one that had to bench these guys when they were getting older and sit them, which is true. But there's also a lot of reports that Girardi really struggled in 2008 because he came in with a little drill sergeant. You know, there's a story, and it's that I, you know, a story out there that he ran around the lunch table. I think Ian O'Connor of ESPN had that story. You're right. The thing yelling, this is how you hustle, which I mean, if you're Posada and Jeter, you are just cracking up at that. You're absolutely right. I mean, Posada too, but especially Jeter, who I I never saw him, him loaf on a grounder. So yeah, I I thought he gave a good answer to that. And and maybe there could have been a follow-up in there. That's the thing about these Zoom interviews. Sometimes you have people for 20 minutes. Sometimes you have them for an hour. But, yeah, Joe, I think Joe had to adjust, too. I I think Joe had to find out what it was like to manage people that he had played alongside with. And then you look at Posada. I think he and Posada had a good relationship when they were teammates. And Joe said, used to always say wonderful things about Posada. But Posada also felt that Joe was blocking him to getting more playing time. Like Posada would love to have been the starting catcher by 97 and not really have to wait to have it all by himself until 2000. So that's not an easy transition. I've never had. That's a hard, hard relationship for the two of them, right? Yes. Like from, from at the beginning and at the end, Joe was kind of the thorn in Posada's side, but from Joe, from Girardi's point of view, he's like, you know, he has nothing but good things to say because, yeah, he was the older brother in that situation that just had to be a little whatever. But I can see Jorge, especially we know he's a fiery guy, being like, this guy again? <laughs> he's taking playing time oh, away yeah. from me again. Uh, so hard spot for, for Girardi, but uh, and if you he look, did pretty well with it. If you look at, at Posada's numbers, too, I'm just going to double-check something here as we're talking. If you – and obviously the Yankees won, and Girardi was a big part of it. I'm not in any way trying to say that that – Jorge should have, yes, make Jorge the starter in 97 or whatever year it was. In 97, he only played 60 games. But if you look at 98 and 99, I mean, you give Jorge another 100 games or whatever like that. I mean, who knows? His his Hall of Fame candidacy didn't last very long. But, I mean, if he gets his home runs into the 300s, if he gets his hits closer to 2,000, I don't know. I'm sure if you're a player when you're reviewing your career – you're, you're very happy and content with what you've accomplished. But just like us in our walks of life, uh, I wish I'd broken 20 more stories. I, I wish I had uh, written my book with David Cohn was on the best list for three weeks, not one. So I'm sure there are players who say, well, 
if this had changed or that had been different, I could have done this. So that those thoughts probably swim around out there. You, you yeah. know how to motivate me to make more dancing videos, Jack. And I think that brings us to the more important stuff. What's, um, what are some of Jack Curry's keys for quarantining? I mean, are we having a, a weekly movie night? Are, are we stretching at 3 p.m. every day? Are we listening to an old album every day? What are, what are, what are some of your tricks to quarantine? That's a great question, Jake. I, I appreciate you Thank asking you. that. Uh, I'm a runner, so the running is, is a big deal for me. My wife, though, has thrown a little bit of a, a kink into that because she doesn't run, but she likes to walk. So we'll, sometimes my run becomes a power walk with her through the neighborhood. Wearing masks, by the way. I do have my mask on when I run. I don't care if it's 80 degrees. I still keep my mask on. I've also been very big on uh, watching a lot of bands who are live streaming. I've probably watched 25 bands who are offering up streams of their music. Everybody from Dirty Heads to Ziggy Marley to Elvis Costello, Jesse Mallon, Brian Fallon. Uh, watched a band called Ballyhoo the other day that I'd never heard of. I don't know if you guys know them. Reggae outfit from Maryland. They're actually pretty good. And diving into diving into shows like everybody else. Had never watched Shit's Creek before. Feel like an idiot that I was out of the loop on that. We blew through that. Watching Dead to Me right now. Just blew through season one of that, which is also terrific. And I crack up that you mentioned movie night. But we actually do usually watch a movie on Saturday, and uh, I've been I've been weak in picking the movies recently, so I think Pamela gets to choose this week. All right, I mean that's there's a lot to dive in there. I've watched <laughs> a lot of those shows as well. Uh, I've been keep talking about it, but I'm watching Grant on History Channel, mm -hmm. and now I'm getting a, a Ulysses S. Grant Buck Showalter comparison in my head, just <laughs> eye for detail and kind of like you got to go there because Buck would probably love that. Just like, you know, Buck Buck never played, but he then becomes this major great manager. Just as Grant was out of the military and becomes the great leader. So yeah, we'll have Buck on. I'll flatter him with that yes, comparison. Do that. That's uh and I know Jimmy, Jimmy, you've been lost in the live bands because that's kind of your whole Instagram feed. It's um, every night. It's like there's five options to go live. It's crazy. Who have you uh beside, who have you watched? Anybody I should uh, latch on to? I dip a little more into like the alt alt country scene or folk like so when john prine passed away i listened to john prine forever but jason isbell just put out his new album which has gone whenever he puts on album, it goes top i think it's number one right now so i watch a lot of him going live uh he's got some some heavier songs on this one he's got i think you'd like like the guitar in the song overseas it's kind of this uh i don't know how to explain it, it but it sounds like some old 70s like uh band and then it's uh I really like that song. So I, I do I do more Isbell, and, and that's where I'm stuck at. Brian Fallon, has he done live stuff? He does on his Instagram. <clears throat> and what he's done is a couple of really cool. He gets another songwriter on, and they, they go back and forth and talk about a song and how they crafted a song. And then oh, that's they'll awesome. each play a song. That, that's been pretty cool. He had the guy on from, uh, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but the uh, lead singer from Manchester Orchestra. And that was, uh, that was, I cool. know Manchester Orchestra, but I don't know his name. Yeah, that's Andy, cool. I think his name is Andy. That's awesome. So Brian Fallon's great at, if you're dipping your feet into alt country, do you know this guy, Orville Peck? Orville Peck. I don't, that doesn't ring a bell. You got it. Which, which is upsetting because I know, I know the deep <laughs> webs of that genre. 
but no, Orville him, Peck. I would call him old country, but he's got an unbelievable voice. And then I haven't done a deep dive into why he does this. Always has the cowboy hat on. And then pre-coronavirus, he wears a mask. You can't see him. All you see are his eyes. So he's always got this mask on. He's he was very interesting. I like that. Orville. It's like a it's like a mask of Zorro yes. with a mop yeah. attached to the bottom. Like of it. it looks like drapes. Yeah, a mop. Yeah. yeah. Alt, alt country right. Andy Pettit. I like that. <laughs> I'll check there. that out. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, uh, my wife and I. The last thing I'll throw in there is because of our schedules, especially mine. I mean, it's crazy. We were the king and queen of takeout. We were not the biggest people who at home would cook. There's just two of us, no kids. Let's just get takeout. We are now on about day 87 of cooking. We have yet okay. to, wow. we have yet to get food from anywhere else. She has become suddenly, uh, she's morphed into Julia Child in year 28 <laughs> of our marriage. So. so so, how many meals have you have you voiced, you know, let's not do this one again, and how many meals say, oh, this is amazing? 90, I'd say about a 90% success rate. Wow. There have been a couple okay. of, she knows, I'm, I'm more of a chicken dish, and she's tried a couple of chicken dishes that I'm like, all right, that one, we could probably, we could put that one to the side for now. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, she's finally started to crack. Last night, I think she said, there, there's a restaurant that we like locally that, that is open and is doing takeout, and you can do the old curbside pickup. So I think we might crack this weekend. It's good. Whenever my mom was a little nervous, she tried a new recipe for dinner. She'd put it on the table. We'd sit down. And she'd say, by the way, I don't like this. So I don't care what you think. And be like, okay, pressure's off. Yeah. <laughs> One bite. I'll take cereal. Move. Yeah. Got to get ahead of it. That's good. Cool. How about you guys? Hey, well, What's kept you going during all this? Man, I, I, I'm a lot of TV at night and series and shows. I actually... I'm doing something very bizarre. I'm rewatching an old show from the early 2000s that's like this campy family show. It's called Everwood. It's WB. Hmm. I watched it with my mom when I was in middle school. And I swear the only reason I'm watching it is because every time the n- new episode starts, I go, oh, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> and I love that feeling so much. So I've just been chasing it with every episode. They introduce a new character. I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy was on the show. But I'm deep into it. I'm like on the fourth season and there's only four seasons. So I have to finish it now. Uh, other than that, um, music and we record like all day. That's good. <laughs> yeah. You guys are churning out, you, you, you've complimented our content, but you guys are obviously churning out the content as well. And it's, it's good to see. We're, yeah, it's we're been fighting. a lot of fun. We're fighting. I, uh, that sports itch, I'll just always need to have that scratched. And that's where, uh, I don't know. You can only, it's like, oh, wow, 2014 finals. Manu Ginobili was good. And I, uh, that's, that's why I, I mentioned date night and movie night because that is now being brought to me in a fair avenue because not everybody wants to rewatch old baseball, basketball, and Monday night football games. So I, uh, yeah, yes, sir. Thank you, ma'am. That's, uh, that's, that's what I'm still figuring out. Compromise. Of work, I got so. 28 years on you. Compromise. You got to compromise. <laughs> compromise. Meet in Play the middle. Shift works if you compromise. Yeah. Kate, but my girlfriend, Katie, she watched Shit's Creek and she watched Dead to Me. And now she's moved on to Working Mom. So that's like, I, I haven't seen every episode, but I just watch bits and pieces whenever, whenever I'm in there. And then I was really liking uh, The Last Dance. Like that was very much. My Sunday night. I, I did, look yeah. forward we, to this. I think we all did. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was it was eye-opening. And I got a chance to uh, 
believe it or not, I was an NBA beat writer for one year. So I covered the Nets. So I was part of a couple of group interviews with Jordan. He had a game winner against the Nets one game I covered. And then when he tried out, well, he was trying to try out for the White Sox in 94. I got a chance to see him play and just a handful of us, three or four New York writers got him by his locker one day. I went back and read my article that I wrote about him trying out for the White Sox. Gene Lamont was not kind. He was their manager at the point, and we asked him if, uh, if Jordan could succeed at double A, and Lamont basically said he didn't want to answer that. He wouldn't give a scouting report on him. He really was not kind to uh, Jordan's baseball skills. He turned his camp into a publicity. You know, it's kind of like you can understand why, like, damn it, we oh got to deal God. with this. I didn't realize he had that hitting streak at the, to start it off. I didn't either. Uh, I mean, I know I don't, I don't want to. The guy's the greatest basketball player of all time, and he, and he, without playing baseball in over a decade, he went and hit 200 at Double A, knocked in 50 runs in however many games. I saw I saw Terry Francona say with 1500 at bats, he would have he would have found his way into the major leagues. I'm not so sure about That's, that. I mean, Terry is a smart guy, and he understands you don't want to be on <laughs> Jordan's bad side. Yeah. <laughs> found his way into the major leagues, meaning what? He he was a September yeah. call up. Yeah. He did some pinch running because he did steal a lot of bases that year in double A. And I'm not trying to, I mean, no. God bless Michael Jordan that he even tried. That was uh, that was one thing with, with Dion when we were talking with uh, Dion about he and Bo Jackson. I mean, those guys did. Yeah. <laughs> they, actually, yeah. they actually were in two sports and had a level of success, Dion in football, a high level of success. Yeah. And you don't you don't see a ton of the fourth, fifth outfield, six foot six types, but that's uh he maybe he breaks the mold on that. No, his um, swing I, looked wrong. <laughs> that's the thing. I did I did an interview with Easy uh, and Melusis on WFAN and I, I said it his swing was just it was very like robotic. They would say, well, Okay, Michael, this is how you should swing. And it, it wasn't just a guy who got up there and fluidly you watch him dribble a basketball, shoot a basketball, boom, that's Michael Jordan. I, uh, I had a friend, and he didn't play baseball growing up, but I, we were big wiffle ball backyard, big wiffle ball house. So, like, you know, he, we're 18, 20, and he got a bat and played wiffle ball, and it, it looked like Jordan, looked like he read a textbook on how to swing yeah. and then just rigidly put it into motion. You know, Walt Preniak was the White Sox batting coach at that point, and he had a certain way that he wanted hitters to hit. But, hey, Jordan had a year where he, where he tried like heck to do something that is, is very, very hard to do, so – Props to him, and then he went back to doing what he was best at, as we all know. Yeah. Is there uh, is there anything else we need to tell the people for you, Jack? I mean, yes, we're here. Keep an eye out for some more of the interviews. You're formally inviting us to be a part of the 90s documentary or any anything else we miss? Yeah, we. That <laughs> night, I'm looking forward to that 90s show because they're, they're going to start editing it soon, and I, I think people we. are really going to get a kick out of this. I told you I we're, 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 we have a pending interview with number two, so that, that should be good because he doesn't do a lot of these things, and I, I think that'll add to the documentary. People are getting a chance to see Jeter. Open uh, up with I, Chad Curtis. No. I'll <laughs> leave that one for you guys. I uh, did an interview with Gooden the other day. That, that should be coming up soon, and that was fascinating to hear him talk about the peaks and the valleys of his life and his career. I have, a, I have a quiz for you guys before we go. Oh, no. You need yeah. the 11 Yankees who were on all four World Series teams, 96 to 2000. Can you name the 11? Okay. Jeter, 
Bernie, Mo, Posada, Pettit, um, O'Neill, Tino. Tino. That's seven. Let's see. Starting Louis Soho. No. Whoa, you got that's the one I thought would. I was about to say I interviewed Soho the other day and he didn't know that. Wow, you got the tough one. Good job, Jake. So we are Soho enthusiasts. We watched. Dom just tried to know me on. I thought he missed. I thought he missed one, but he was in nine. It was with Seattle ninety five. It's funny, guys. Oh yeah, they traded him away, and then they traded back for him. We we detailed that in our fragmented Yankee career, but he was there for. I mean, in ninety six, he was there for about eighteen games. And then plays in five postseason games. In 2000, I think he played in about 10 postseason games. Good polls, Jake. He's awesome. Well, that's get that, that still takes you to eight. Yeah. Um. Girardi, no. Who's uh? God, Brocious. Gotta be. No, no, no I'm, I'm disappointed. He's not 96. There's one that I'm, you're forgetting that I'm really disappointed in. <sighs> Is it a pitcher? It's got to be, I mean, did we do Mariano? Oh, Coney. Coney. Wow. No. Coney. Arabal. Knobloch? Nope. It's got to be, is the, someone like Mike Stanton? I don't you're know. You're missing two, and they're relievers. Mike Stanton is not one of them. You're missing two. Oh, relievers going to be tough. My brain jumped to Mendoza. It's not Graham Lloyd. Mendoza. Mendoza. You're down to one. And this guy, I'm going to throw you, I'm going to throw you a layup. This guy. Graham? Oh, softball. This guy has has worked with yes. He has been on the yes network. Nelson. Jeff Nelson. Damn. Okay. It's crazy. I'm I'm happy with that. So that's the eleven. But yeah, we're we're doing that ninety show. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Gooden and Soho interviews coming out this week. Uh, when do you think the end of that dynasty was? Do you think it was two thousand one or two thousand three? Because that's a good question. Because in 2003, we were watching all the World Series, right? And and we watched from 72 and on. So you see the teams. And one thing I said as soon as 2003 started, I said, this is a different team. You got Dick Johnson. You got Kareem Garcia in right field. You got um, Knobloch wasn't at second. It was... Soriano there? Soriano. Soriano, yep. Um, it was just... Uh, Boone was at third. It just it was a much different team, so it kind of made me rethink. Because I always said two thousand three, like if you want to say they made, they got into six World Series in eight years. Is that what it is? Yeah. But really, that two thousand three team was the core of it was different. I, based on your explanation, and I would have said this anyway. <laughs> I'm going oh one. I just have always felt like that that period is more emblematic of the guys we're talking about um 11 players played 96 to 2000 i'd have to see who else was on the 2001 team but i i kind of stop it after 2001 i mean you could argue for 2003 because of what you just said but i think once once they lost in 01 i feel like something i felt like something ended there it makes the number more cool is it six and eight years 96 there's no 97 there's no no no, six. Yeah, you're right, because they lose in 01. That was that would have been four in a row. Diamondbacks, yeah. Yeah, I think it's six and eight years. 96, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, and 2003. Yeah. I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's a dynasty. Yes. 100%. That's, uh, that's insane. 
That's crazy. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, man. It's this always fun, fun to catch guys. up. My, my full count cone book is coming out in paperback in July. That would be my other thing. Okay. Nice. I love paperback. I, I, unless it's a book like full, full count, I usually wait full paperback, but I read that in hardcover just for you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Always good to catch up with you guys and uh, keep churning out your content. Hopefully we'll see you at a ballpark soon. I think we will. I think we're, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully people will be at a ballpark soon and we will be talking about it. Players yeah. will be at a hopefully. ballpark soon and we'll yeah. be talking about it. Perfect. Hopefully uh, next time we talk, it's about who's the 30th man on the roster and some of the fun stuff. I would absolutely love that, guys. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks again. See you, man. Well, Susan, in life, unfortunately, all good things come to an end. And there you have it. Some good talk. I'm really excited for that Dynasty documentary to come out. All the raw interviews are up on YouTube, which is kind of a cool way to do it because now you can see, like if you listen to all these interviews that Jack's had with these players and then you watch the documentary, you can see, oh yeah, you know where they got that from and that from. And you can see you know, kind of the editing process of what they make out of all that. So that's exciting. And man, he's been around for all of that. So like, you know, he has all those stories and he's seen all these players. So it's, it's great insight. The media... The media float at the parade just getting bombarded oh, is pretty man. funny. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, I was I was trying to make Jack feel better. Don't throw rocks at me if, if I end, ever end up on a parade float. that's a, Dude, that's a... <laughs> I mean, coming into that, like, so the 96 one, you have no idea what you're getting into. You just know it's going to be a special day that you remember for the rest of your life. And then to at some point have rocks and stuff coming on ship, not a good time. Yeah, you know what it was, though? It was just like John Heyman's... Uh, you know, like personal enemies that they just knew where he was going to be. Yeah, we found him. It wasn't Yankee fans who found out it was media. It was just John Heyman had some people that he'd wronged, and he put all he put all his colleagues at risk. So it was kind of rude of him. I thought about making a joke of pretending to be Jack and saying like, "Hey, John, why don't you duck down for a little bit?" But I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know could, <laughs> if you could hide. It'd be a lot better for. I everyone didn't know if that hit. <laughs> probably not hit. So. Uh, I I made it. I dropped the John. Yeah, yeah. So, um, whatever. It was, it was good. Tweet at Jack. It was, tell him. Tell do, him you love him. Go check out the content that he's been putting out, and uh, tune back in on Monday night. We will be recording the voicemail app, so give us a call nine zero eight eight four five five seven nine two. I say with confidence. Leave a voicemail. Nailed it. Awesome. Leave a voicemail. Uh, it'll be live on Tuesday for Patreons. You can join us on Monday when we record. Enjoy your weekend. Have a good time. Go Yanks. Tell them, Grams. Go Yankees.